Welcome to the Climate Torch Podcast. My name is Chris Wedding, and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, startup founder, professor, impact banker, occasional monk, and founder of Entrepreneurs for Impact, I launched this podcast to share positive stories of CEOs, founders, and investors tackling climate change. In these interviews, you'll learn about their high-impact companies and investment strategies, successes and failures, career paths, habits and routines for productivity and health, and recommendations on favorite books, podcasts, tools, and more. Among all the climate doom and gloom out there, I hope these discussions offer some light in the darkness and perhaps a model for what we should be passing on to the next generation. In other words, a climate torch. All right, let's get started. Bill Nussie, welcome to the Climate Torch. So here we are, author of Freeing, with the ING, Freeing Energy, a new book, which we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about. And important to boot, not just an author, not that just is required, but not just an author or a podcast host, but also a serial uh, entrepreneur, I believe, of several uh, VC-backed tech companies. Uh, And as it turns out, some roots just next door in Raleigh, North Carolina, so, uh, hey, man, another innovator in the South, y'all. <laughs> Glad you're here, Bill. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Well, you know, normally I would I would start off saying like, hey, look, what's your what's your business all about? You know, why are you guys unique? But in a way, look, you got this this book, this message, which you don't write a book unless there is a unique message that no one's really said quite the same way. So. What's the book? And after all this experience as an entrepreneur, why'd you write it? Yeah, I should start by saying I didn't actually think that writing a book was a great idea. I don't really like writing. But to your earlier point, I felt like there was something that needed to be said. And that was the best way to do it. It's long form. But uh, you know, I've been doing tech startups for, for 25, 30 years, had an IPO, a couple exits. And I was looking for something that was going to make a really big difference and matter. And I found my way to clean energy and fell in love with it. But I wasn't sure what to do. I didn't know anybody in the space. And despite the the wonderful credit you give me for having a message, starting with a message for the book, I wrote the book to learn as a way to teach myself. A friend of mine said, listen, you know, the great thing about writing a book is that you can get the smartest people in the world and you can ask them the dumbest questions. Mm. And so I've interviewed 320 people on six continents. Uh, Heck of a, heck of a fun, too fun too fun. Uh, would have taken probably a year or two less if I ha- wasn't having so much fun. Through that process, my thesis on where the opportunities for investors and startups, policymakers, uh, anybody really, for making an individual accelerated difference on clean energy, it emerged through that process. And it was not surprising, was highly aligned with my predilection towards disruptive, small-scale, outside-in opportunities that go after the incumbents and change the industry. And that's what I have found and feel very confident and now passionate and mission-driven to share this idea with a lot of folks. And the book will hopefully be in the podcast and all that, but the book will be the next big step to getting that story out there and making people realize that the small-scale energy stuff, it's uh, today nearly the entire industry, including the U.S. Congress that likes this kind of thing, the COP26, they, they see all this rooftop stuff as the, I guess, the kids at the Thanksgiving table, or the, the Thanksgiving, the kids Thanksgiving table. Right. Oh yeah. Hey, yeah. You, you, here's, a, here's your plastic forks. Cute? And 
Yeah, aren't you cute? And it's uh, I make a pretty strong case that it's going to be a very large part of our future clean energy, and it's going to be maybe the most exciting and almost definitely the best place for uh, high growth private equity venture capital kind of investors. I'm just looking at some notes here. 320 interviews. Was this for the book? Was this also the podcast? Like, what was this? The podcast came about because a friend of mine who was helping me and giving me feedback early, early on, he said, you know, this is kind of dry and it risks coming off like a textbook, which honestly is how I write a book if I wasn't getting better advice. And he said, why don't you start a podcast? And he said, I'll produce it for you. And he's uh, retired and he said, I got time and I'm from the radio space. So we'll just mm -hmm. put together a podcast. And that way you can ask people really human stories. And the podcast was created in, and my startup was created along the path of getting the book written. So I think that the process of the book has created all kinds of secondary, wonderful outcomes that'll pay dividends for years beyond just the story of the book. But yeah, 320 interviews. One of them, by the way, was at the top, I climbed 300 feet straight up a ladder to the top of a wind turbine and sat outside the top of a wind turbine and talked to the guy who was uh, maintained them. And that was part of it. it. Didn't make the book actually, but that was one of my most memorable interviews of the 320. Well, I, I can tell you that uh, I'm not a big fan of heights. Or am I? And, and my, my wife has had fun at my expense many, many, many times where heights were involved. Good for you is all I can say. Done it once. Done it once. <laughs> That's enough, right? And this guy hops out. He, you know, there's a, a hatch on the top of a lot of these wind turbines. And this guy just hops out like a spider. And then there's a, a bar and he latches in his uh, carabiner to it. And uh, he said, come on out. And you walk around and I'm like, no, you know, I think I'm just going to stick my uh, torso above this hatch. Cause that's about as, I, I just can't, the wind is blowing like crazy and I could just see. And he said, no, it's very safe. And I said, I'm sure it is. I'll just talk to you from here. It, it reminds me, we were, we were vacationing at the Outer Banks early this year. And, you know, we climbed one of these lighthouses and it was a windy day. And before we go up, the person down at the bottom taking our ticket says, Hey, at the top, be sure to hang on to your children. And I was like, what kind of <laughs> what kind of an effing warning is that? Maybe you should close this shit, you know? Anyway, we, we got up there and they were right. Like, I'm not a huge dude. I mean, you know, I'm I'm 160 on a good day, and I was being blown around. Oh wow. To our youngest, who's 10, I was like, no, nope, you're not coming out. Wow. So, so then then my PSA, public service announcement on the way down, seeing other families with the kids is like, hey, hold on to your kids, you know? <laughs> anyway. Um you also mentioned the podcast was kind of a, an unexpected outgrowth of the book writing. And I do think it's kind of an interesting, you know, maybe lesson's too strong a word, but lesson for me or for listeners, like, you know, sometimes you you have to discover what's really important or, or what's, who knows, opens new opportunities Yes, by taking an action, right? I know that, you know, coming out of a master's and PhD, certainly I was heavily biased towards ridiculous planning. Uh, and analysis. What it, I mean, look, great, but also maybe not the best way to to get to where you want to go through, you know, through action. So it's a fun reminder, right? That you just don't know what is out there until you start doing stuff, taking a step in some in some direction. Yeah, I think it's getting out of the office, which we're doing less and less of in this new Zoom world we're in. But that said, getting out of the office, sitting down, seeing things personally is invaluable. And I think when it comes to what you and I do on the podcast, and why I think podcasts are having our, their third or fourth renaissance is it harkens to a saying I heard early in my career. There's the only thing truer than truth is stories. Hmm. And, you know, you can see that play out in American politics today and in the way people debate climate change. 
they debate a lot of things, vaccines and masks and a lot of things. And, and these stories for so many people are really powerful and they override the cerebrum and people become intoxicated. And it's not just the people who are fighting climate change and fighting vaccines, people on the other side sometimes are just as emotional mm. uh, and reactive to uh, their position. And so I think what we do as podcasters and I tried to do as an as a author was to find a middle ground. And uh, one of the early discoveries in this process of researching the book was that the transition to clean energy, particularly at the small scale stuff, it actually has one of the most universal and unifying dimensions that it gets lost in the partisanship and the climate debates, which is mm. these small scale systems save you money. doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're rich or you're poor, although obviously if you're low income, it's difficult to finance them. Well, that, that's getting addressed widely and quickly, a mm. lot of focus on it. But if you are able to put panels on your roof or your building or your school or your church or your synagogue, you will save money. And that transcends all, all other things. And maybe that's not the most flattering thing to say about capitalist America, but if uh, I think everyone in the world, if you can save money and spend the money on your family and other things, uh, well, why not do it? And that's, that's the big secret about clean energy that people are missing. And I think it's uh, one of the things that uh, comes up a lot in the book is what's the role of utilities? And we can talk about that, but I'm certainly not an expert on utilities, but I have a lot of informed opinions. But one of the things that I love to provocatively punch people in the nose with initially is don't give me this baloney about how it's cheaper for utilities to install large scale solar than it is to put it on my roof. You know, they hear this argument from solar advocates. Well, you know, obviously, if we're going to put a lot of solar up, it doesn't make sense to do it on rooftops because it's so much cheaper to put it in the large scale utilities. This is the silliest argument. It's cheaper for the utility. But as far as I know, there's a bunch of large scale utility projects that have gone up and around Atlanta, Georgia, and my electricity bill has not gone down. But the moment I put a solar on my roof, my electricity bill went down. So I'm pretty sure that rooftop solar, for as far as I know, I'm the only one that matters. You, Chris, and all the people that the utilities lovingly refer to as rate payers. Yeah. If, if somehow our interests are factored and weighed in, and as far as I'm concerned, ours are the primary interests, rooftop solar is way cheaper than utility scale. So these are some of the fun things I poke at in the book to wrench people out of their assumptions, uh, advocates and critics alike. Mm. Yeah, I like that. You know, being a little, a little provocative, right? I try. Counterintuitive fight myths. You talked about the power of stories a little earlier. And I say this as a person who really, really, really loves spreadsheets um, <laughs> and data. That, yeah, you're so right. And this is something I have to keep, keep learning is that stories are often more powerful, maybe always, often more powerful than numbers and data and spreadsheets. And, and two, either books or tools come to mind along the lines of telling good stories for, for listeners. You know, one is this book, Story Brand which is a great framework for really communicating slash marketing your company's reason for okay. being, right? Think websites or other material where you got to position your customer as the hero in this hero's journey. So I think that that's a fun read for, for folks listening who want to get better at telling stories. And the other is a classic, the book uh, Influence. Robert, I don't know to say his last name, Cialdini, maybe with a C. Anyway, I was reading that uh, recently, and like, like it's the kind of thing that we need to get better at if we're going to persuade people to understand all the power of the reasons for right this this low carbon future versus wherever their their anchors are uh, today. You also mentioned, Bill, how you know rooftop solar and saving dollars, right, cash flow positive for the homeowner, pretty motivating, regardless of your political preferences. And I think about one of the Uni University of California uh, endowments 
divested from fossil fuels. When they came out and did that, they said, look, this is not about, I think in their words, something like, this is not about values or climate necessarily. It's about financial returns. And they, they, they noted the very poor returns, financial returns of public fossil fuel companies relative to the S&P over a certain time period. And I think both are true, both motivations are true, but how much more powerful, right, is that statement that it's, no, we did it for money, right? Right. To reach mainstream versus, you know, us, let's say. I, I completely agree with you, Chris. And because the whole debate around climate change has overshadowed clean energy and other climate-related or climate-affecting industries, it has just gotten, it has obscured some really basic things. Like, the biggest, uh, you know, I, I did all this research and there was probably one thing that surprised me that I didn't see coming more than anything else in this research. And that was how dirty coal is. I, mean, I wasn't looking for it. I had no problem. I mean, I did coal was whatever. And what I realized, I mean, I couldn't believe the things I was reading and I couldn't believe that this stuff would be allowed to happen. And it wasn't in the front page of every newspaper every day. And what I realized was that coal has become so demonized appropriately for its carbon output that everyone's forgetting that it's actually probably just as bad or worse from a pollution point of view. Mm. You know, when we burn coal, even today with coal and its diminished position in the United States, it's the largest single industrial waste stream in the U.S. Mm. We generate more coal ash, which is nasty stuff. It's uh, it's only a um, through a lot of lobbying that it's not measured, it's not considered toxic waste or hazardous waste, I should say. And so there's this just 100, 100 million tons a year. And while everyone's talking about coal and the advocates for fossil fuels tell us we're going to scrub it of carbon dioxide and make it great, it ignores just how absolutely bad coal is from a pollution point of view. And there's a story in my book about the largest industrial spill in the United States history that no one's ever heard of. It's 40 times larger than the Exxon Valdez. It was a Kingston coal ash spill in uh, early 2000s. You know, it was 300 acres of this sludge that ran over these homes and people died. And it's just a crazy story and no one's ever heard about it. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why the industry, the investors, to your point, are getting around, I think pretty much have moved beyond coal entirely. And I think we'll see over the next 10 years, the same reaction to natural gas, which isn't nearly as bad, but has enough bad that it, uh, there's better ways to put investor money. Mm. Yeah, and just to, the, the the icing on the cake, that's the wrong analogy, but to, to add to that, right? I mean, when you talk about, you know, yes, coal bath from a climate perspective, but also pollution, I think some folks hear pollution and they're like, oh, well, that's for the, the tree huggers to care about. But I think where you're also going with that is like, no, 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 like it kills people, like kills people, um, which is, and like tens of thousands, which I think most folks don't, don't think too much about. So diving... Uh, more into the book, you know, a lot of books on, I'll say this topic, you know, clean energy, et cetera, feel kind of high in the sky. That's not the case with your book. So thank you. I can imagine why that's true, given your kind of operator's background. But yeah, what, what's your thinking behind that approach to the book? You know, Chris, when I started writing this book, I did the required reading list. I read uh, Jigger Shaw's uh, Climate Wealth, Tony Siva's Clean Disruption, uh, the old, old great ones like uh, uh, Daniel Jorgen's The Prize and to really get my head around the energy industry top to bottom. And I found most of these to be absolutely enthralling. The scale of the opportunity, uh, solar trillions, uh, the scale of these market shifts were amazing. Uh, it got me excited. 
But for the most part, there was very little about, so what do I do now? That was really the motivation to write the book that I wrote the way I did. I kept asking myself if somebody's, I'm, I'm imagining this, this theoretical reader one day who's somebody that says, you know, I'm early in my career, late in my career, but I want to get into this energy industry. And what do I need to do? How do I evaluate which companies I might join? Or if I'm particularly innovative, which companies I might start? Or if I want to invest my money as a public company investor or a private company venture investor, where might I put my money? And so I wanted to get specific about what makes tactical on the ground opportunities work in clean energy and what doesn't. And there's a lot of history from all the way from uh, Thomas Edison creating the first grid down in Manhattan to um, the rise of electric vehicles and how that market emerged and uh, all the way up through um, the two, what I call the clean apocalypse of 2011, which is when the, uh, I think MIT said that $10 billion of venture money was lost. And uh, I started writing the book right then. And when that article came out in 2016, and I, the first versions of the book said, listen, I'm telling you, clean tech investing is a great idea. Don't listen to all the naysayers. And of course, since then, the clean tech has become one of the hottest segments to fund in the world. So I had to rewrite those parts of the book. Mm. But you know, now it's, uh, it's, it's smoking hot. It's interesting. And I think what I tried to do with the book is to to connect the dots with the large political winds that are blowing and the um, economic trends of solar, whether it's utility scale or small scale, and connect those dots to what can I do? An early version of the book was pretty broad. It was also about like, you can put solar on your roof and here's how you call a solar installer. And that was when the book was 200,000 words. And uh, normal book's about 80,000 words. So I started cutting and throwing that out and it's on the cutting room floor. And it got back to just really how do people who want to see high growth, innovation-driven changes. And that's really the crux of the book versus the broader appeal of solar on your roof and things like that. Yeah. So it sounds like in the in the earliest versions, you were just like, you know, nine years ahead of <laughs> ahead of the rebirth of, of clean tech as climate tech. I mean, they're different, but they're pretty darn similar. Only two or three years, really, because it was okay. 2016. And uh, okay. uh-huh. it was obvious to me that it was there were reasons why clean apocalypse happened and they were not to be they weren't to be repeated in the same way they just couldn't the circumstances were different so i knew the market would emerge i could never have imagined either the broad stock market and specifically the clean energy funding market would be as hot 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 as it is right now well i know we we chatted a bit about the hotness of the climate market ha 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 before <laughs> pressing record and sorry sorry i had to um yeah, it's like you know, as as a father, I have to I have to add in some dad jokes every once in a while. You know, Love that. Game. But a frequent question is like, all right, well, so is it bubble territory, or is this like in, in baseball analogies? Are we in the first inning, or you know, I think th- there are strong. Well, there aren't strong arguments yet on both sides, but they're they're getting they're getting stronger. Uh, I, I was just looking at a few of these headlines around the bubble concept for this zero newsletter I write last week, I think. And one of them kind of came out of Wired Magazine. And that particular author was talking about, hey, look, man, it's bubble time. And as I read further, it became apparent this particular author, I think, comes from tech, not from this or these sectors, which, you know, outside perspectives are really helpful, but it's also a detriment as well. And in contrast, I recall talking with Eric Toon at Breakthrough Energy Ventures on a, a previous podcast and he's like, no, no, this is like, you know, preseason training in the baseball analogy, right? So many macro drivers suggesting we're just getting started in funding, creating climate solutions. And here, I don't, I don't have the answer, but I, I wouldn't say we're, we're a bubble. It feels, it's elevated uh, for sure, but a long way to go. 
because I can tell you unequivocally that it's a bubble. Uh, <laughs> there's just no, you know, anyone over uh, 50 that's been investing in tech for the yeah. last uh, 30 years can tell you, I mean, if it walks like a duck and squawks like a duck, it's a duck. And, yeah. uh, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some people make the most money during bubble implosions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, by no means is it the end of the world. But if you look at the valuations, you know, there's this funny thing I learned in business school. It's a crazy idea that has stuck with me. It's called discounted cash flow. I've heard and, of that before. Isn't yeah. it a crazy idea? And it's like, yeah. And if you actually look at the cash flows created over time, yeah. you can predict what the value of a company is. And you can get ahead of that if you have reason to be optimistic the company will achieve outsized cash flows in the future. So you might hire, value them higher today. But I haven't done the math. I'm sure someone has. But if you look at the valuations of pick a segment, clean energy or anything else, and you multiply the uh, valuations by all, you're looking you know 20 times larger than the world economy, right? So uh, even if you account for the usual number of casualties, it'll always occur in any high growth tumultuous market. But the good news, I think, for all of us in the clean energy space is that when the bubble does eventually burst, I think that we'll be one of the few safe, not safe, but uh, sheltered places to be because the thing that everybody forgets when all the politicians are up on up in Capitol Hill arguing with each other and they're arguing about healthcare and social uh, network, uh, social uh, safety nets and all these very important topics, American independence and greatness, whatever topic it is, they, they and the clean energy comes into all that. The thing they always forget is that clean energy is different than almost everything else they talk about. Because clean energy is actually an investment. Most of these other things, while you could call them an investment in the future of the country, the returns are less tangible, maybe more important depending on your values, but they're less tangible. You know, will America be competitive in 20 years? Will our least benefiting people in the country, will they have had a chance to raise their standard of living? These are really important questions, but the clean energy can be addressed along those same lines, but it is unique among them as well because there's a direct economic return. If I build a solar plant, and I spend $2 million on it, it will create $3 million worth of value over its lifetime. There is no other economic thing that I'm aware of on the landscape, the political landscape that has that clarity. So I think that reality, even if the bubble, when the bubble bursts, hopefully it'll slowly recede and everyone can deal with it. It won't be like a gigantic explosion like 2008 with the housing market crisis, which I was confident that wasn't going to happen, but uh, let's hope it doesn't. But whether it pops or it just deflates slowly, clean energy still represents fundamentally a massive growth market and a absolute set of returns to the investments being made. It's assets, it's infrastructure, it's stuff that Mm -hmm. roads and bridges and buildings, you still need it when you're done, no matter what the economy is doing. Well, let's speaking kind of, you know, winners, you talked about, I think, Kara Swisher's prediction that the world's first trillionaire would be a green tech or whatnot entrepreneur. And I think your your observation or maybe prediction is like, yeah, cool, but they're going to build their wealth around smaller community scale electricity solutions. Can you just elaborate on that? I'd probably say it's broader than just a small scale electricity. Okay. It's going to include anything that's not utilities, mm. uh, which could include electric vehicles. And uh, I, I don't want to give any hints or sort of preview the the punchline on this, but there is one guy that's on the way to being a trillionaire and he's kind of doing some stuff with electric vehicles and yeah. home power systems and things yeah, like that. Yeah, so yeah. he may be, when she said that, I, I she might've been thinking about him, but uh, boy, is he, uh, Mr. Musk, come a long way towards that. Uh, we'll see where he ends up personally. But the problem, well, the benefit, the, the great thing about governments, and I'm, I believe the role of government should, should be there. I don't think governmentlessness makes any sense. You know, when the electricity industry is defined from the days of Thomas Edison 
in terms of large scale. And the whole reason Sam Insel was successful in convincing the American public, he was the, you know, the, the monopoly man of the day, FDR called him out as singularly as the reason that the depression occurred, the Great Depression occurred. The reason he was able to convince America that despite the railroad barons and all the, uh, the trusts that they had been so disillusioned with through the early 1900s, that electricity stood unique. It was the one thing where you should allow giant aggregations of capital to occur. And his argument made a lot of sense because the larger you build a power plant, the cheaper it gets for everyone that benefits from it. And the trouble is, if there's two of us trying to compete for that power plant, the people that will fund us, the banks, won't give us as much money because one of us is going to go bust, potentially. So he made the argument and the American public and the government, US government, state governments all accepted it for good reason, that we should make electricity a monopoly. And they did. And it's incredibly regulated. Some say it's the most regulated market there is, at least in terms of the detail and the lack of innovation and dimensions of competition that it allows. And the good news about markets like that and any market that's moving around hundreds of billions of dollars a year is that the government has a heavy hand in it. Let's make sure it's not abused. You know, we don't want to make sure people aren't skimming off the top. We want to make sure that it's uh, uh, at least to, a, to an egregious extent. And we want to make sure it's fair and equitable. And, and to some large degree, they've achieved that with electricity. But the problem with it is that it moves incredibly slowly. It's, it's politicized, not in the bipartisan nonsense we see today up in Capitol Hill, but just in general, it's just a very slow moving, heavily legislated industry. So you just, you just capital moves in and out of it very, very, very slowly. And therefore, there's not going to be a lot of great wealth creation. A lot of people are going to make great salaries. It's good to be the CEO of a utility, a regulated utility. You're going to make some nice money, but you're not going to create Silicon Valley kind of wealth. And that happens when things move quickly. So if you look across the, the landscape of the electricity industry, and I, as I did my research, I have to tell you, I became very depressed about a year and a half in because I didn't see how you could get this giant utility scale things to move quickly. And then the answer was right there in front of me. It's the, the small scale systems, while they are somewhat regulated, it's at a fraction of what the utility industry is regulated at. And so they can move very quickly. You see the sun runs and the, the solar cities and others that are the very early, the you know, the very earliest of companies in that space, but they're creating, they're creating growth, they're creating competition, they're creating innovation. You know, I like to tell people, Zep Solar, most people have forgotten about this company, but it was a company that sold to Solar City back in 2014 yeah, for like $180 million. And I sat down with the CEO back then and uh, said, so what do you guys do? Because I just sold my company for $300 million to IBM. And we were, you know, $100 million marketing tech, you know, global company. And he had, and I said, now, what do you guys do? He says, well, he did about a couple million dollars last year. I said for 180 million. Nowadays, that's not unusual. But back then it was crazy. He said, we make a little connector for helping you put solar panels on a roof easier. I said, come again. And uh, I'm sure I'm getting the story wrong. And he may disagree with my, my telling of it. But the punchline of this is that it was a relatively simple bracket that cut the labor for installing solar by half. Mm. And that actually slashed the cost of putting solar up on a roof. So he created a tremendous amount of value for shareholders and, and a downstream value for all the solar customers where a team could put a solar panel on a roof in one day instead of two. And that meant twice as many people got solar. And that meant that everyone that did get it spent less on it. Mm. And that's why it was worth so much money. There really is no equivalent to that in the large utility scale world. They would have to study it for six years. They have to run pilots. And maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but that's the way it works today. When you get to the small scale stuff, you can move really quickly, quick movement, lots of money creates value for investors and you know someone's going to be a trillionaire probably Elon Musk but we'll see mm, mm, we'll see you've referenced this a couple of times kind of what is the role of the 
power utility looking forward in this future that we're, you know, we're getting glimpses of, and you've studied a whole lot more and communicated through your book. What are those scenarios, I suppose, Bill? I mean, they're, they're not entirely going away, question mark. Right. No, absolutely not. What is the new version? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's highly unlikely that you're going to see mass grid defection, which Rocky Mountain Institute has created that term yep. or popularized it. And that's where I take my house off grid. Yep. Any more than um, I could just keep all my CDs in the rack and never get new music. It's nice to be part of the internet because I can tap into so much more. Mm. And when new things happen, similarly, if I can trade electricity, buy it from large power plants when it's cheaper, uh, charge my electric vehicle in a quick amount of time because I don't want to wait to drain the batteries in my house. There's just a lot of good reasons to have a grid. It's a great backup for the future of electricity, uh, solar battery homes. It's necessary when you have a couple of days of rainy weather. So at least uh, for the next couple of years until batteries get really cheap. And by the way, it makes sense for that to be a monopoly. And Sam Insull famously said that the electricity industry is a natural monopoly. That was part of his argument. And what's happened as technologies change in the last 20 years is the aspects that are a natural monopoly have been narrowing. Don't tell the big public utilities. They think that, especially the ones in the Midwest and Southeast, are convinced that it's the entirety of the utility should be remain a natural monopoly. But the rest of the country and many parts of the world don't agree with them any longer. But I think it's a fair statement that the distribution grid, which is the poles and wires we see to our house, the ones buried in, under the streets and cities, that really does remain a monopoly. And so in all cases, that will be run by a uh, utility of some sort. A subset of utilities are going to lean into this shift and they're going to end up being winners. And their role is going to be what I call choreographing electrons. So they're going to be um, eBay rather than Walmart. They like it. It's fun to be a Walmart. But in this case, eBay is going to, I think, become the one of not, if not the predominant way to get electricity, trading it, trading it with giant companies and trading it with your neighbors. I don't know if that's going to be 10 years or 25 years, but it's, I think it's an inevitability. And utilities that lean into it and work with their regulators to make it happen, as you see happening in Japan and Australia, and you see happening with the energy communities throughout Europe, this isn't some pie in the sky idea. It's very real. Mm -hmm. But the United States gets stuck in its own way sometimes. We'll, we'll come at it later, only after the rest of the world's proven it's absolutely doable and the citizens demand it. But I think it's going to ultimately be a predominant way that we get electricity through this sort of internet of energy. And um, I think that's the utilities, some of them are going to realize it, they're going to embrace it, and uh, they're probably going to end up acquiring the ones that fought it, and they're going to acquire their assets. You know, if you really love this topic, there is no better read than Peter Fox Penner's Power After Carbon. It's a, if you're not in the industry, it's, it's not easy to read, but it is the best overview. And Peter Fox Penner, if you don't know who he is, uh, he's one of the biggest thinkers on utility policy, but he's also the chief strategy officer of Energy Impact Partners, which oh, is yeah. the largest venture capital firm in power tech, energy tech. And so he's uh, got a phenomenal perspective, captured it all in this book. And he, he lays out a lot of different ways utilities can grow. Um, when I read it, I, I read it to say that it's going to be what he calls these smart integrators where they're piecing together all the different systems and like eBay, making money as stuff flows through their system rather than selling the kilowatt hours exclusively. Yeah, it's a helpful analogy, the kind of you know eBay versus Walmart. I think it's also a sane perspective, right? To say, look, the utilities have lots to add to this resilient, low-cost power infrastructure that we have. It's just that it, it should look very different for all sorts of reasons that we care about. I think what has happened more in the past, but still happens today is, I think sometimes the clean tech innovators, 
either overtly or maybe less overtly kind of give the middle finger to the utilities like we don't need you we're done we're taking you over which i think tends to be counterproductive it's poking uh, but- the bear for sure there's a great story i you know i imagine if i had a time machine and i would go back and I would find Alexander Graham Bell and I would bring him today and show him an iPhone and say, dude, look what you did. Look what this is created. I can reach 7 billion people with a single number. I can get mm-hmm. access to the, some information of all human knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. On this little device. Then I would go get uh, the Wright brothers and I'd say, let's go for a ride for a 747 or an mm-hmm. F-14, right? Yeah. And they would be unbelievable. Look what you've done. Look at the scale yeah. and the impact. Then I would go get Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison. And I would say, come look what, and they're like, this is exactly what we did a hundred years ago. Show totally. me any part of this that's different. I see giant substations. I see, I have a picture in the book of a 1913 substation and a 2020 uh, substation, you know, to the untrained eye and maybe to the trained eye, but my untrained eye, they look identical, right? Let's go see a coal plant. Okay, you've got a ton of coal you're burning. It's more efficient, but uh, basically burning coal, you're sticking the ash over here. Well, look, it's the same pile we started back uh, 80 years ago of ash. And so um, I think that that industry has just doesn't innovate. And I think there'd be no place for the industry today for Thomas Edison and, and uh, even uh, uh, Sam Insel, uh, who created the industry the way it is today. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's stuck in time. And uh, I think all of your entrepreneurs and hopefully a few of my readers will play a role to help that utilities, maybe kicking and screaming a little bit, but hopefully uh, you know, excited there's a new future. And, and by the way, the profits are going to be much higher for you, Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. Utility, but it's going to take some change. And we got to keep the system working. We got to make sure that low-income people continue to get affordable electricity. Yeah. A lot of things we got to get right, but absolutely we can do it. We have solved much bigger problems than this, mm. even if it looks hard today. Yeah, amen. So, so Bill, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to clarify exactly where folks can find the book and your podcast. So. Please plug away. And then what we like to do on the Climate Torch is talk, you know, mostly about business, but a little personal stuff. So I'm going to ask you some other questions about, I don't know, a little kind of getting shit done and some other things. <laughs> right. I love it. So I'm an, I, you know, I, I used to run a company called IXL and we put the first websites up for General Electric and Disney and AT&T and back a million and a half years ago. And so uh, I made it easy. It's freeingenergybook.com. And you go there, Perfect. all your questions will be answered about the book. And that will also land you on the free energy website. If you click the podcast button, you can see about the podcast. But of course, the podcast is available everywhere. But there's good overviews and history on the site. And it's now available for pre-order. Uh, the hardcover just was made available today. And there'll be an audio version, all of which will ship to you on December 7th, if the publishing uh, team does as they've promised. So it's coming soon. And we're very excited about it. Well, uh, kudos. Uh, writing a book is no small feat, uh, for sure. And usually it's not done for money. It's done for other things. So there's no, yeah, yeah, there is no money in this, man. This is a giant, uh, a giant yeah. sinkhole of money. Yes, double, this is double kudos. Yeah. Yes. You're paid back in, in karma, I suppose. Thank you. Thank you. That's yeah. my goal. So just a few thoughts on the personal side. Uh, obviously, we are people listening to this podcast, not just automatons building businesses. If you had to look back, Bill, across building many companies, what might one or two tips be for, you know, look, moving faster, having higher impact, et cetera? You know, I've run a bunch of companies, had some good exits, and I've reflected many times on what I would do differently. And there's really two things that jump to mind. They're very broad, hopefully a little resonant with uh, the folks listening, I hope. The first is I wish I could have gone back and taken time away from the day-to-day office 
much more frequently and not by accident, not as the exception. Hmm. I would go back and tell myself, get away from the office for a day and a night. And I had young kids early in my career. So um, now I have not young kids and, uh, you know, leave them too. It's hard, unimaginably hard. And I think my family, when I started doing this was, uh, they were a little bit older, but in, in still in school. And they were at first, they're like, well, dad, you know, we never see you or honey, you're not around. But then they saw what happened. And I, and I had been advised just as I'm sharing this with you, it, it is, if you step away, it's where the biggest ideas, where the clarity, hey, this is the, I've got the courage to make that tough decision, just stepping away. I would say that a large portion of the best ideas came from this, these offsites. And the other one is super simple, which is hire slow, fire fast. Mm, mm. Hire slow, fire fast. Yeah. Yes. Hard, hard to do that right now. Hard, hard to hire slowly when, when there's so much capital and such growth. Yeah. On the first, your first bullet there, I can totally relate, but I'm a little slow yeah. too. Uh, I, I just got back from a <laughs> once in 17 years uh, <laughs> so, solo mountain retreat, tiny little cabin on a pond in the North Carolina mountains, reading, thinking, Perfect. meditating. Oh my God. It was amazing. It's difficult to translate if you have a team of folks or investors or young children, it's difficult to translate exactly why this isn't some kind of self-gratification of, you know, I just can't take anymore. You deal with the problems. But as I came back and people saw me recharge and they came back with new ideas, conviction to do the things we were struggling with, I think people became believers in my community, particularly my family first. So mm -hmm. dad, you need to take some time off. You get to get away. <laughs> we'll be okay. Nice. Nice. It's a little bit like, as in like the mechanism, there's some, you know, Eastern mystic quote, I don't know where it's from, but to the mind that is still the whole universe surrenders. Oh, yeah, right. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Great justification for hopefully what will be a spring uh, retreat <laughs> if I can negotiate with my my four other family members. Hey, how about how about any any habits or routines uh, that keep you focused, sane, and healthy, Bill? You know, I take notes of everything, and I use I used to put them in Evernote, but then Apple yeah. Notes. I'm a big Mac guy, iPhone guy. The notes tool is phenomenal. I, I feel badly for Evernote. They really pioneered the idea. Apple took it over, gave it away free. It's kind of the way the tech industry works, yep. but it's a phenomenal tool. Search on all your notes, uh, put your favorite files in clip links. And then, but for the book, which required an entirely different level of data, you know, gigabytes of PDFs and things like that. I, there's a tool that's like Evernote or Apple notes called DevonThink. And if you have a lot of data, if you're an academics or you're dealing with textual data, DevonThink runs only in the Mac for better or worse, but it's a phenomenal tool. And uh, I can find almost anything I've ever seen within three or four seconds, the combination of storing it intelligently and learning how to use the search capabilities. Hmm. But it, it's basically an extension of my brain and, and everything in the book is somewhere buried in Devon Think over the last couple of years. That tool is cool. fantastic. That's a new one. I like that. Well, let, let's close out with a pretty different question. What is the nicest, well, one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for you outside of your family, Bill? Chris, that is such a wonderful, powerful question. And I thought about it for a little while. You let me think about it ahead of time. My first thought was there have been so many people that have been so generous to me over my lifetime that I didn't deserve, that I had a hard time finding one thing. But I'll give you an answer, maybe not inspiring or profound. But when I started knocking on doors saying, hey, I'm this dude that used to have some traction in the tech world, uh, and I want to enter your clean energy world. You have no idea who I am. I have an interesting story, but the degree to which people opened the door to me 
uh, said, oh, you got to talk to my friend. You need to get in front of this. It felt like such a community that was had open arms. I, I don't, you know, I'm in it now. I don't know if it still feels that way. I try to pay it forward. But I had never seen an industry or a segment within the traditional software tech industry that was as welcoming and as uh, familial as I had found the clean energy industry to be in the early uh, early part of this journey. And to all those people, you know, when, when Jim Rogers of uh, Duke Energy sat down with me, Emery Levin sat down, Emery mm-hmm. Levin sat down with me. It was a set of crazy circumstances. A lot of people didn't sit down with me, but they did. And uh, they inspired me and gave me maybe the greatest gift of the, you know what, you could be relevant in this industry. You could make a difference and you're not crazy to throw away your marketing tech and software tech career to go do this. So yep. welcome, he, they would effectively say, and let me know how I can help further. And that was so warm and so positive and it changed the course of my life. And here I am. It's fantastic. I think partly it's because, you know, like we're making good investments. We are building important businesses, but we're also kind of on a mission. And I think folks feel that, right, when you approach with that kind of yeah. mentality of, look, and we, we need we need more folks to come in from the outside, right, to bring those skills to this particular, you know, mission and opportunity set. If you read the dedication of my book, it's to the 10,000 people who will join this industry. Mm. Well, that's a great spot to finish, Bill. So freeing energybook.com. Don't forget the ING and hope folks find the book and the podcast. Hey, look, we'll we'll put a pin in it for now, but look forward to the next chat, Bill. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here, Chris. Thanks for uh, chatting today. Thank you for joining us on the Climate Torch podcast. We appreciate your time and we know how valuable it is. If you want to learn more about climate finance, startups, productivity hacks, and occasional blurbs on things like stoicism or meditation or conscious leadership, all with attempts, underscore attempts, at humor and levity, then please consider subscribing to our weekly newsletter called Zero, which you'll find on Substack or the Entrepreneurs for Impact website. Or if you are a scale-up stage climate CEO or investor looking for a peer group to share best practices, expand your network, scale your business, and not be so lonely at the top, then check out our Climate Mastermind program at Entrepreneurs for Impact. Finally, if you want to draw more attention to world-changing climate CEOs, founders, and investors, then I encourage you to subscribe, follow, or rate this podcast. That, of course, makes it easier for new listeners to find and be inspired by these stories. All right, until next time, let's get back to launching ventures and growing businesses tackle climate change.